Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso-Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. I am really sort of starstruck by the guest I have today. My uh, my career for, for as long as I've been doing this, I have admired and followed the work of Amy Walter, who is the national editor, editor for Cook Political Report. She is a contributor for PBS NewsHour. I mean, the pedigree that is Amy Walter is just super impressive. And that's part of the reason why I'm so flattered that she would join me today. So Amy, without any further ado, thank you so much for being with oh. us. You're so kind. Thank you so well, Tracy. This is so fun. Well, it's been, for me, as I, I mentioned to you before, it's been one of these uh, fun little projects to introduce not only uh, Hill communicators and colleagues and friends that are in the public affairs space to some of the reporters that I work with and admire, but also it's been really kind of illuminating for, for the folks that, uh, that do what we do here in D.C. about you know how we're all getting on, how we're getting on in this sort of weird time that is 2020, 2021. Uh, and nobody more than you is sort of dissecting that and, and you know, re-examining uh, that more uh, based on the way that you do the work that you do. But Amy, how is it that you, how did you get your start? How did you get started in this business? Um, it's a good question because, and, and I think, I hope people can maybe relate to this, which is I did not have a linear path mm-hmm. to where I am and that it was complete, in some ways, somewhat random Mm. um much like so many folks in washington who who come here thinking they're going to do one thing or they think they're going to be here for you know a year or two and then 30 years later they wake up and they find that they have kids and a house and a mortgage and all those things and they're still living in washington and um look i i came to washington at 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 interesting time or maybe better yet i should say this the internship that i had in college that then I took as a job right when I graduated was for a group called the Women's Campaign Fund, which was a pretty small organization, had been started in the 70s, encouraging more women to run for office. Mm -hmm. And they worked at every level, you know, state ledge up to Senate. And um, so it was it was an interesting time just because I was learning about electoral politics and seeing um, what that was all about. But I came into town literally, you know, a month or so before the Clarence Thomas hearings. And then, of course, Anita Hill happened. Wow. And it was at that moment, of course, that, um, you know, politics of, uh, well, what we think of now as, you know, women engaging in politics, women as candidates really shifted. Mm-hmm. It felt like almost overnight. It was a really a tectonic shift. Mm -hmm. And you saw all of these women, both as candidates, but also as activists and donors get completely first time donors, right? People who said, who hadn't been active in politics, who saw this hearing, this black woman 
sitting in front of a panel of just all white dudes. And it was like, hmm, something is not okay about this. We need to see more women sitting up on that dais. And so here I was unknowingly, but it was quite cool to be in the middle of a history making moment. And mm-hmm. that that election, you had a record number of women elected to Congress. And um, so I kind of got the bug at that point about being part of the political part of Washington and um, the candidate piece of Washington. I went and worked on the Hill. I went from there and worked at a trade association. I worked at back at Women's Campaign Fund. So I did all these different things Mm -hmm. for a while. And I didn't love any of them. They're fine. But I wasn't like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I had met Charlie Cook. when I was working at the Women's Campaign Fund, talked to him about some of the candidates we were working with. And he had, he came up to me uh, one day and said, hey, the person who covers our house races is leaving. What do you think about coming over? And just, okay, well, that sounds like a fun job, wow. right? I get to write about politics all day. And, and, um, and also to work and with sort of the, Charlie Cook, which is And to work with Charlie, fantastic. right, which was really fantastic and cool. And... Um, and it really was the 2000 election where, uh, to me, that's when I I kind of thought, okay, this is what what I should be doing. And in that sense, it's it's um, you know we're not traditional reporters, right? Mm-hmm. We don't um, uh, we're, we don't go out and uh, you know try to break news and get scoops and um, um, parse a policy um we're really there to uh, to handicap and to analyze the the campaigns the candidates the political environment and so our sources are um both the candidates themselves which mm-hmm. is my favorite part of the job interviewing candidates mm-hmm. as well as all the people who work in campaigns so people like you and people who are on the ground in those states, people that, you know, probably that you've worked with who were state party chair people or better yet people who had been, you know, uh, working in uh, Republican politics in a state for, you know, the last 20 years, those sorts Mm -hmm. of people. Um, But also appreciating more and more, I think, um, you know, how, uh, we can use data to help understand the, the change that's happening sure. um, politically. Mm-hmm. So that's the the long and short of it. I um, in between coming back to the Cook Reporter, I also uh, worked at ABC News, which mm-hmm. was as a political director, which was a great another great experience. Um, I told myself, you know, I really want to be at a network. Yeah for an election year, Absolutely. a presidential election year, because the resources you have to cover that, it's fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exponential, the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, and then working at the hotline, running the hotline uh, for a couple of years was also a great experience, uh, especially in learning how to manage um, a team, uh, sure. a team of young people, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is sounds so weird to say that, you know, I was the old person there at 37 <laughs> or 36. The gray, um, the gray hair. In the but room, yeah. I was literally the gray haired because most of the people who worked there and and the hotline, as 
you know so well, these has this mm-hmm. great storied history of producing so many of the people that we all know in politics now. Absolutely. I took the job from Chuck Todd, who went off to NBC. Mm-hmm. Reed Wilson mm-hmm. was is a hotliner. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Martin at the New York Times, mm-hmm. hotliner. Uh, so there are just so many folks that uh, Nora was Nora. Yeah. Nora O'Donnell was a hotliner. Mm-hmm. So Shira Sensor was there at one point. Yeah. Yep. Man, yeah. The list goes on and the on. The list goes on yeah. and on. It was so it was one of those things where I loved uh, it was the, the hardest thing about being, um, uh, you know, an editor there is you you knew you were basically cultivating a farm team for other uh, news organizations, right? Idea. And so you had to accept the fact that the people that were really good there were going to get picked off. And that was mm-hmm. actually okay, right? Mm-hmm. Because your job, it's sort of like being a parent, right? Like my job is to, tr- you know, help you like grow up uh, yeah, and be a better human <laughs> and be, hopefully be a better human and then take these skills and bring them to a better, uh, to, not a better platform, a bigger platform. Yeah. I call it building yeah. an empire because I've done, I've done, I've, I've done similar work in similar spaces. And I will say that the disciples of, of your hotline time are all <laughs> incredibly loyal to you. Uh, yeah, and I think that so it is, great. I mean, it's just, and they're all superheroes now. And, and I mean, yep. that, I mean that sincerely, they are all doing extraordinary work in other places. Yep. Um, yep. and that's true. I mean, I spent seven years in New Jersey politics and the resources that we provided to folks like yourself, not only are, are, it's not really sort of perceived to be traditional news, but it's actually also the work you do is almost as if uh, a service to other journalists so that you guys do this extraordinary exactly. data mining and reporting and analysis. And then other reporters who also are your colleagues come to you and say, Amy, help me look through this for this reporting I'm doing on whether or not this is something folks should care about wherever exactly. they're reporting from. No, I, exactly. and, I, and I love that. And and political insiders and folks uh, that are at the campaign can't live without the work that you do. I mean, there is definitely um, a movement that happens inside of the building when Amy Walter, or Charlie Cook, or someone says, this is what's happening on the ground in this race. Uh, things happen, and, and it's as if you're moving the markets in, in the political side of the world. So it's uh, it's important and really cool, fun for geeks like myself who dig political analysis. <laughs> uh, I love the work that you do. But so Thank how you. how has that for you has it has that shifted now that like I mean I know the world feels like it's coming back to some sort of nor I feel like we'll never be back to any kind of whatever we used to know. But how did that change for you? So much of what you do is analysis, but a lot of it's inter- interacting right. with people. So how does that? Yeah. How did that shift? During the pandemic, you mean, like trying to do what we do. Yeah. You know what I realize is so much of, um, you're right. So much of what we do is um, analysis of information and data. And um, you don't necessarily need to be either one in office doing that or, or two um, be in, uh, you know, be on the road to to do all of that. Mm -hmm. But there is something that is so important about the following things. One, we do meet with candidates. And I, I have to tell you, 2018, you know, that was, a, that was the last time we actually physically met with people who were running and uh, for that 2018 class. Mm-hmm. And can you do it over Skype and Zoom? Sure. 
But there's something, and you know this too, about sitting in a room with someone and you can really, even in just a half an hour interview, you can really take the measure of a person. Everything from the way they sit to what they're wearing to how they answer certain questions, the role that, you know, their staff people play in helping them. It's that chemistry. Um, or not helping. It's total chemistry. Yeah. You can really. Um, and the other piece, too, is you learn so much in just the um, non-scripted conversations. Maybe that's a, mm-hmm. a way of saying it. And mm-hmm. I think about things like going to the conventions. Now, it is true that conventions themselves have are very scripted and there's very little quote unquote news that breaks at conventions, mm-hmm. right? But what you do get an opportunity to do is to bump into people in, again, a non-formal setting. Mm-hmm. And that alone becomes so critical in building relationship and building sources and having conversations that you could never have like on the record at a press briefing. Some of my best um, friends were, were friendships that were forged at political conventions. Right? Yes. Right. No question. I mean, you, you just, you can't do that over Zoom. You just no. can't. And, you know, the being able to look someone in the eye, being able to sit with them for, you know, uh, a, an unspec- you don't have to have the specified amount of, of time with them. It, it really matters. And you also can get the feel of things. And, you know, I'm still a big fan. I know that, you know, you're supposed to be dispassionate as an analyst and, you know, just look at the data and look at the, mm. um, but, uh, but you also get a feel, right? You've been in so many campaigns and, mm-hmm. and been around environments where you're like, doesn't feel it's like electricity there is yes there is some right. high, high voltage or low voltage electricity is, that is running through it. you yeah. know it exactly yep. and you could feel it and you could understand it and and i think about you know being in 2016 being at the democratic convention and yes there were a whole bunch of folks excited about hillary clinton and the first woman being nominated to mm-hmm. be president but man there were a lot of bernie people there who were uh, not all that enthusiastic. Dragging down the vibe. One. <laughs> they <laughs> I were bet. super dragging down How the How could vibe. they not be? Yeah. They and, felt like it was taken from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, um, it really was quite something. And same with being in Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. The, the energy was less about, oh my God, we love Donald Trump as much as it was, we hate Hillary so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you could see, you know, just how that drove the two, that that undercurrent there was so important to appreciate and and to understand. So I, I really missed being able to do that. The last thing I was able to go to, I think it was the um, the February um, uh, uh, New Hampshire. Sorry, I just uh-huh. had a blank. Yeah, uh, the New Hampshire prime. Yeah. the New Hampshire primary. Mm-hmm. And again, I just think it's. It just feels so good to get out and just get a sense of what's going on. It doesn't always tell you the answer, though. And I'll, I'll tell you, for example, I understood why so many folks who were covering the campaigns on the ground in early 2020 said there's no way Joe Biden's going to win. Because it's true, when you went to events for Biden in Iowa, I was there in early January, mm-hmm. um, it was pretty grim. <laughs> you know, yeah. There were like... 
40 people showing up at these events. Oh. And then, you know, hundreds of people showing up for Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. And so there was this sort of sense you could you could understand why so many reporters who were not in Washington were saying, yeah, everybody's talking about Biden as the front runner, but I'm going to tell you this guy, right, mm-hmm. just doesn't have the juice. Mm-hmm. So it told us something, but yet we also have to be careful not to overinterpret that, right? Yeah. Like just because something's happening in Iowa does not mean that that is going to disqualify him from, and obviously, as we saw, uh, doing better in states sure. like South Carolina and, of course, Super Tuesday. What do you make, Amy, of, um, you know, polling in general has really sort of met its challenges over the last several cycles, really. I mean, the one to me that sort of took my breath away from the outside looking in was the Eric Cantor race in Virginia. Uh, Um, But the the industry itself is going to have to go through a a renaissance or a rebirth or sort of some uh, reflection as to how it is better to, to harness that sentiment that is what you're talking about there on the ground. What kinds of trends, what kinds of things are you seeing uh, as maybe emerging or new ways to, to sort of harness that and get a better sense of where people are? And if the answer is they're not there yet, that is okay too. Yeah. But it feels to me like it feels to me like that's the next big, uh, because data was like this big sort of buzzy yeah. thing that was happening and how are we going to harness the data? And it feels to me like as an outsider looking in, you do this every day, um, we're not maybe there yet. Like maybe there's still more room to grow. 100% correct. And I think, look, we're always victims of this, right? Either fighting the last war or overlearning lessons from a previous election. But mm-hmm. uh, my shorthand of it is, I think, especially for those of us who came of age, this is not me because I'm old, but came of age, say, during covering the Obama era, right? Mm-hmm. So covered the 08 and 12 campaigns. And, um, you know, they uh, basically ushered in this era of, as you said, data-driven analytics. And yeah. it and it was compounded by folks like Nate Silver um, yeah. having a platform and mm-hmm. becoming almost overnight becoming this sort of sensation, right? Look, you can use um, statistics and data and come up with these um, uh, models Mm -hmm. that can tell you more about an election than the old school, old timey kind of political hacks who, you know, basically tell you, right, war stories about things that worked and didn't in their Mm -hmm. time. And we can now quantify this and we can, you know, roll out the old, uh, the old way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, data tells us everything and until it didn't, right? right? I mean, how I just remember so vividly listening to so many of those 26, the, I'm sorry, those Obama 0812 folks in 2016 telling those of us who said, I don't know, this Hillary thing doesn't seem like it's going well. Oh, you're bedwetters. Look at the data. Mm -hmm. The data's fine. Look at the analytics. We have the, you know, look at the modeling. Right? right. Well, that didn't work out so well. Um, And 2020, it went beyond the modeling into, wait, the actual polling itself was where things were up, right? And, and, Mm -hmm. And what we're coming to find is, it was off pretty much in one direction, um, which was it, it. The polling 
pretty accurately captured the Biden share of the vote, Mm -hmm. but did not capture the Trump share of the vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, what that that is troubling, because do you you have something that you attribute that to? What became sort of clear early on, and now as I'm reading um, more and more um, post-2020 analysis, people who are actually digging into the data, including the Association for um, Public Opinion Research, mm-hmm. um, they are saying there is a, a non-response bias. In other words, mm-hmm. the kinds of people who just are not participating in polling look different. Mm-hmm. from people who do mm. look different maybe is not the right way they look the same right mm-hmm. in terms of if you got a poll and you said uh it had this percent of black white asian college non-college etc that would be totally correct and the 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 actual turnout would reflect to that as well so you've got the the makeup of the electorate correct but a white non-college voter in your survey Mm -hmm. is not the same as the white non-college voter who showed up to vote. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are, there is a group of voters, either they do not trust Mm -hmm. institutions Mm -hmm. who would ask you to participate in something like this. Right. Why should I talk to whoever Mm -hmm. don't trust it? Don't want to be part of it. Um, or they are harder to reach, right? Like we just cannot find them in the way you're able to find other voters. Mm. Um, no one really seems to have a good answer to this. Yeah. The other reason, though, that people are not despairing quite yet uh, in the industry about this is it's not clear that this goes beyond Donald Trump. Right. Right. That makes sense. Because the polling in 2018, when he was not on the ballot, was pretty good. Mm-hmm. The polling, right? Um, He's an X factor. He, I've said that before. He He's is, sort of this, like, it, how much does he, how exactly. much does it sort of play out over the course of the next, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so with him not on the ballot, and also the issue polling does not seem to be impacted by this. In other words, you know, if you're looking at groups that do polls about, um, for example, vaccine, vaccine hesitancy, who's getting the vaccines, that's actually lined up remarkably well to the reality of Mm -hmm. the data. Um, So why is it that the polling can pick up all these other things, but but it's on vote choice that it's not getting it? So. It's um, what I think this tells all of us, and I, I feel like at the Cook Report, we do this um, sort of instinctively, which is, yes, data is important. Yes, polling is important. Um, but it is not the entire thing, right? Yeah. Candidate quality is important. The political environment in that state, in that district is important. Mm-hmm. The um, this, this, the other sort of variables out there that can tell us something about what this race is looking like can help prevent uh, being, you know, overly 
confident about doing a model. Mm -hmm. And I think finally, the thing we need to learn from these last two elections, presidential elections especially, is that political polling, I think we have come to see as what it really is, which is it is not precise in the way that some people would like it to be. Of course. It can tell you big trends, right, mm-hmm. which it did do correctly. Yep. Donald Trump's not very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, the intensity uh of opposition to Biden was not as strong as it was to Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. People didn't like the way that Trump handled COVID, but they did like the way he was handling the economy. Mm -hmm. All of those things. They lined up pretty closely. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Isn't that interesting? Well, it's certainly, uh, it's going to certainly play out more over the course of the midterms. What kind of impact does, uh, does that candidate have over others? Uh, what kind of uh, candidates are we able to recruit in, uh, yep. you know, in the in the next? I mean, will Biden run again? Will there be someone other than Trump for the Republicans? It's going to be, well, for people like us who kind of we devour this kind of information, it will be fun to watch. Uh, maybe a little uncomfortable for those who aren't necessarily, uh, you know, finding this the most entertaining time, but. listen it is though even if for those who were like oh my god that was just an exhausting four years or is this the way it's going to be forever no i don't want to speak for you lisa but i i know for me this is what makes politics so fun and it's why people like us can't totally quit politics Mm -hmm. (laughs) right because it is a little bit yes a little bit infectious dynamic Mm -hmm. it's always something that is new and changing and as soon as you think you've quote unquote figured it out right here which party hasn't said at some point in the last 20 years we're now uh the majority party Mm -hmm. for the future right or we've we've built the what is it like the permanent governing majority the permanent majority the um, we've we're we're in a realignment. Politics is constantly realigning, and that's, that's right. what's fun about it. That's and right. we're seeing it at every single level now. It is not just one region of the country where this is happening. This is happening everywhere. And so, um, the dynamism of this is what, to me, makes it so so fun. Yeah, to, to I also think though that we shouldn't lose sight of history. Like that's the one thing yeah. I remind people all the time is that as exciting yeah. as this feels today. If you reflect back on when we were just infants uh, and there was a president assassinated and there right. was a ship and there was a president that resigned. And I mean, if you think yeah. about all of those times, there was a war going on. American soldiers <laughs> were dying. Right. I mean, yeah. um, there yeah. was a gas yeah. shortage. A lot of those things, you know, if we reflect on history, if we reminded of history, the truth of it is, is that we're going through a cycle and the, the American you know, yep. s- society is going through another cycle and here and it's uncomfortable, but, uh, but yep. I, th- I agree with you completely. It's why we're here. It's why I, just like you, I, I said I would move to Washington for two years and I would be moving right back to New Jersey. And here I am in year 20 and not any, any, <laughs> there's no moving trucks in my driveway, much uh, totally. to my, much to my old friend's chagrin. Uh, so as we sort of look forward, as we, you know, figure out how to, how to, um, do what we do, you know, not just on the, on the professional side, but like, what kinds of things are you up to? Like what, what keeps you guys busy on the weekends? Uh, 
the good news is now with vaccines and um, better weather, Mm -hmm. uh, able to be outside, our son being able to get back to being with his friends, being in the basketball league. I am so desperate for camps to start. I hope that they will. Um, And uh, and just being able to, I mean, I, I felt it this week as the mask mandate is lifted, as so many of the people in our lives now are vaccinated, as our kids are getting vaccinated, that we are going to feel for these next few months, like uh, what will keep us busy is actually seeing people that we love (laughs) for the first time in a long time and not being weird about it, not being weird about, can I go into your house and use your bathroom? I'm so sorry. I tried to hold it. I did, but I just can't hold it anymore. And I promise I'll wear a mask and I promise I'll wash a lot. I, I you know. I shook someone's hand. I reached my hand out, an old colleague, someone I hadn't seen in a very long time, and reached out to shake their hand. And we did shake. And then I took my hand away and I thought, what have I just done? It was one of those, the, yes, the reemergence it's, it's of that sort of the normal. Yes. It's going to be a minute. It's going to take a time to it's adjust. It's going to take time. And it's going to, I mean, the one thing, and this is where kids are amazing, right, is that they really haven't missed, skipped a beat in terms of doing what they were asked to do, at least um, my kid, you know, I'm, oh. I'm sort of amazed at this age group. Like, um, you know, when we were that age, nobody wore helmets. Most, no. We didn't oh. have seat belts. No, I mean, I no. still remember. It's amazing. We're still just, alive. <laughs> it is amazing. I still have this image of my mom holding my baby brother in the front seat of the car, right? Yep. Just on her lap. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, mom, you realize you would get pulled over and all of us would be sent to like, child protective yeah. services <laughs> for doing that today but um but you know they wear helmets without thinking about it. they they would never think about getting in a car without a seatbelt and no. i see them in school and they're all wearing their masks and they're not making a big deal of it they're it's resilient. just like they're resilient they're just like whatever it's it's what we do now and the the part that's not resilient of course is the, the stuff that they missed right you oh, can't yeah. get that year of life back Mm -hmm. these really formative important years so that is going to be uh really a challenge for them but just seeing them just go go with the flow of like you have to wear a mask to this okay Mm -hmm. yeah you know yes it's weird playing basketball with the mask on but if it means I can play they're, basketball, they're all doing though. it. Yeah. yeah, they're all doing it. Yeah, so. no, I know. I with a, with a house of two teenagers, like much like you are, we're just I'm constantly surprised at how uh, flexible they have been. I mean, yeah. it's not it's nothing has been perfect. It has been very uncomfortable. No. Uh, yeah, definitely have had dinners that look like Oreos and Cheetos around here. But so what? <laughs> you know, it's gonna no, be okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Judge me not. We please. have only we have only been, that's I hate those people who not, I don't that's not a fair word. I, I won't say that I hate them. But those people who have turned this time into like productive, you know, like, like moving forward on their physical, spiritual health. Mm -hmm. God love them. 
that wasn't us. Yeah. Everybody did you it know? different. It's okay. It's okay. It's, All right. Yeah. Don't pass your judgment on, right. We can't pass your judgment on us and don't pass judgment on whoever else. It's all cool. We're all, all still good. coming you, through. You were able to use this time to like reach your peak physical health, yoga, whatever it was and, or, uh, eating, there's you know, a, whatever you were able to do, great for you. Yep. That wasn't us. There was a, there's was a reason us. why people are, are, are lamenting about the COVID-19 and it's not because it was, you know, 19 lost pounds. It was extra pounds brought in. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, Amy, my last question, cause I'm, we're running out of time here and I'm so, so grateful for, for how generous you've been. I always ask my guests to recommend a future, uh, yeah reporter, colleague, friend, is there someone that you think would be a good guest for a future podcast? Yeah. So I, um, one of the greatest, um, things I was able to do in these last few years is to, to host a radio program. And it gave me the opportunity to, to meet all kinds of people that I, that I hadn't gotten to know before. And one of those folks who I think is just really smart, sharp, um, and just sort of gets both politics and Capitol Hill um, is um, Sahil Kapoor. I don't know if you've read or seen, you've probably seen him. He works for NBC. Yeah, um, I have. Well, so, I, I certainly have seen. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, I've I, um, been really uh, just, and, He's been really generous to me, so I also am very thankful for that. Yeah. But um, well, I mean, time is limited. Those, I yeah. love looking at at people who I don't know how old he is, but mm-hmm. yeah, I know he's not my same age, so younger generation <laughs> sort of coming up through the ranks. Yeah. I have a soft spot for, uh, as I know you do too, for the Capitol Hill reporters. Yeah, I do because I think um, understanding Congress, understanding the individual members and their motivations is really one of the one of the core things to 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 help someone understand and navigate Washington. Mm-hmm. So I always look to those folks to help me make sense of, of what's really going on and That's why. Great. Yeah. That's a not, that's a dynamite dynamite recommendation. I will reach oh, out to right. him and I'm I will glad. tell him yeah. I will tell him that you sent tell him I, me please his do. way. And please I do. will uh and I will uh I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so glad we had a chance to chat and uh I'll look forward to uh to keeping in touch. Thanks again for Thanks coming. Thanks a lot, on. Lisa. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast. A podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.